When I was in Boardman, Oregon, I uh, got an opportunity to be a reserve police officer, and uh, I thought that would be fun. The uh, chief of police went to our church when I first went to town there, and so I became a reserve police officer, and uh, what that required of me was to pass a written test and be breathing. <laughs> And to be able to shoot straight. Uh, If you don't know it, uh, whether you think it or not, police departments take shooting and carrying a gun very seriously. And, uh, and so you, you have to qualify every so often. You know, if you're a regular officer, every, you know, most places about every three months you have to go out and demonstrate your proficiency. So before I could carry a gun, I had to borrow one from one of my deacons because I didn't own one. And then I had to go out and prove that I could shoot straight. So the sergeant, uh, the sergeant of the, of the Boardman Police Department, and I went out. And my shots at 25 yards were all over the place except on the target. And I thought, that's crazy, because when I was a kid, I had a BB gun, and I could always hit the target. I guess a 357 Magnum is different than a BB gun. <laughs> and uh, finally, he said, uh, give me that gun. And he shot it, and he, and he looked at it, and he said, there's no rear sight on this gun. Well, no wonder you can't hit the target. You know, you got a front sight and a rear sight, and you line them up just right, and the bullet goes where you expect. And I was so stupid that I didn't know there wasn't a rear sight on the gun. So I went to the sporting goods store, got the rear sight, and lined it up and shot straight like I expected to. Living the way God wants us to live, to reap the benefits of what God wants us to have, requires having your sights lined up on the right target. And the Apostle Paul is going to talk about that, about lining up your sight and and having something be in clear focus that you are pursuing in your life. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard to all and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. The Apostle Paul was so focused on his God-given task of spreading the gospel by the spoken word and by his life that he wasn't discouraged by his circumstances or his status. 
if we're going to understand that, we first of all need to think about Paul's discomfort. Look what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The the people of Philippi have sent a gift. They've sent an offering to Paul, and they've also sent some questions and concerns. And it would appear that they knew he was in under arrest and knew he'd had some difficult circumstances. And, and they must have said, Paul, how are you doing? And he said, listen, I want you to know that the things which have happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, what were those things? Well, it will be helpful to us to, to think about the travels of the Apostle Paul. And... You know, I don't get nervous very often when I preach, but when I'm talking about the Mediterranean, and I have a couple of residents of the Mediterranean here, uh, I want to make sure my geography is good. But uh, it, obviously, Jerusalem is, is right over here, and uh, the Apostle Paul was saved and, and uh, did ministry in that broad area that we call Israel. And then in time, the Lord led him to go out preaching the gospel. And he did that, and if you have a, uh, you know, a map somewhere of the uh, travels of the Apostle Paul, you can look that up and follow it in detail. But here's the thing I want you to know. The Apostle Paul clearly had thought through spreading the gospel to the whole world. The Apostle Paul didn't get up in the morning and say, hmm, which way is the wind blowing? Well, I guess I'll walk this way. Oh, maybe today I'll walk that way. No, if you look on that map, you'll find the Apostle Paul working his way around this area. And what he did was he would go out and, and, and evangelize and start some churches and then come back, come back to Jerusalem uh, and report in, come back to Antioch, then go out again and a little further in some different areas and then come back. There was a, a great method to his madness. And, of course, the method to his madness kind of follows these lines of what we would call the Roman Empire in that era. It would be like if you and I sat down and said, okay, I've got the United States to cover. You know, would we go in a circle or would we just uh, go helter-skelter? Well, the Apostle Paul said, I'm going to work my way around. Now, uh, uh, the thing that you need to understand is as he worked his way up into here, he got about up to here, And his plan was then to go this way, to go east into Asia. Now, you and I, when we think of Asia, we think of China. And, of course, it's way over there. But that whole zone is called Asia. And and so he got up there and said, I'm going that way. And when he said that, the, the Holy Spirit said no. And he actually tried to do that a couple of times. The Holy Spirit said no. And when he tried and the Holy Spirit said no, then what happened was, you see that label Macedonia? You remember the event where he had a vision and a man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. Well, he had that vision right about in here. And a man from Asia or from Macedonia said, come over and help us. Now, is Macedonia a separate country or part of Greece? Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. That's what I wanted. 
I knew I was fuzzy on that. So part, I would call, if I was talking about the Bible times, I would say Macedonia is in northern Greece. Okay, I may not be quite accurate there, but you get the idea that he was here and, and he went over to Macedonia. Now, what I would like you to think about also is this. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, he said this, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. You see, he in his travels around here, he had a target to get to Rome. And then beyond that, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He had a plan to go to Rome. He even mentioned at one point going to Spain. And so he... He was going around the Mediterranean out that way, and that was his goal. Now, look at verse 13. Um, Here. He said in verse 12, The things that have happened to me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul wanted to take the gospel to Rome, and he got to take the gospel to Rome. Just not in the way that he wanted. The record of the events that brought him to Rome are contained in Acts chapter 21 through 28. You could read that this week and just kind of follow his movements, get your Bible map out, and you could see what happened. But here's the the short story. He was arrested on an illegal false charge in the temple in Jerusalem. People lied or they misunderstood what he was doing. He was arrested. And and subsequently, he was a prisoner in Caesarea for two years, and eventually he appealed to Caesar. Now, he appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. He had the right to hear his court, his, his case tried by Caesar. And he did it because he wanted to save his own life. Sometimes I, th- I think we see the Apostle Paul just like Superman, like spiritual Superman, and, and chains and whips bounced off, to him, off of him. But actually he was at a point where they were about ready to kill him, and he said, I appeal to Caesar. And he did it to save his life. And that's not, I'm not criticizing him. I'm saying there are times when we take the precautions given to us, and the Lord uses that. I really think the reason the Apostle Paul appealed to Caesar was to save his life, not to get to Rome. But he got to Rome, and when he got there, he was under house arrest, which, uh, which meant he had to pay for his own housing while not being able to work. And he was literally chained to a Roman soldier. Look at verse 13. My chains are in Christ. And he mentions the chains a number of times. So he, he, he has to appeal to, to Caesar to save his life. He gets taken to Rome. And along the pathway to Rome, he has to suffer shipwreck. And, and of course, before those things, we could talk about the beatings and the hardships that he went through. But in all of these hardships, Paul never became anxious or discouraged or even slowed down in momentum because he could see what God was doing. And he cared more about what God was doing than he cared about his circumstance. 
Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul's perspective was this. God's at work. God's at work here. God is doing his work through me. He didn't say, oh, pray that I'll get out of jail. Now, he's going to talk about them praying for his deliverance, but that wasn't his primary concern. He wasn't uh, writing to them saying, oh, thank you for that offering. Please send me another one. You know I'm really poor. What he cared about was the furtherance of the gospel. Paul realized that the limitation of his circumstance, his literal chain, was being used by God to advance the gospel ministry. No doubt these words that he had written a few years before came to his mind. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How would you like to be the guy that wrote that? And then had to live that. He said, I know God's at work. A few years later, after this event, when he's in jail another time, he said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. The Apostle Paul knew that God wasn't or isn't limited by anything. And because of that, he knew that his circumstances, from a human perspective, they were terrible. But in reality, they were just another unique way for God to work. Think about it. Not only did Paul get to Rome, but through him, the gospel came to the highest level of power. Look what he says here at the end of this book. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Can you hear the jaws dropping on the floor when the Philippian people read that? Now, if you were to imagine some place of power, some some serious place of power, and somebody wrote you a note and said, there's lots of Christians here. And you'd go, really? Well, that's what happened. But as Warren Wearsby, a noted Bible teacher, uh, commented, he said, this is something that Paul could have never done as a free man. Paul would have never reached into Caesar's household. How did he reach into Caesar's household? Through the Praetorian Guard. Paul didn't see his chain as a limitation but as a unique opportunity to live out the will of God. He didn't see his chain as a limitation, but a unique opportunity to live out the will of God. What do you see when a chain is put on you? We all have some limitations. And we get extra ones from time to time. Are you at peace or are you anxious? Are you all worked up trying to break the chain off? Is all of your effort given to getting rid of the chain? Or do you look at the chain and say, 
God's at work here. I wonder what God's going to do through this. I wonder how God's going to use this to further his gospel. Warren Wiersbe again comments, The secret is this, when you have the single mind, the single mind of focusing on God's work, you look on your circumstances as God-given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel, and you rejoice at what God is going to do, instead of complaining about what God did not do. Isn't that good? If if you're focused on, on God's work, then you rejoice at what God is going to do, rather than complain about what God did not do. With this single mind... What was Paul's impact on the world around him? Well, first of all, there was an impact to the unbelievers. Again, in verse 13, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. The word palace guard is from the Greek word praetorium, and the best understanding of this is that it was a reference to the place or to the people who inhabited that place, which was the Praetorian, the Praetorian Guard, the nine or 10,000 hand-picked soldiers who served Caesar. And it, they didn't just serve this Caesar. There was always this group of elite troops who served the Caesars. Now, <clears throat> think about it. The Apostle Paul gets put under house arrest, and here's this soldier. Uh, probably think of it in today's terms as a Green Beret or a Ranger or, or that type of person. The really, the really elite troops, and they are chained to the Apostle Paul. If the research that I read was right, for six-hour shifts. So how do you suppose that went? Suppose the Apostle Paul said, you got some cards? You play cards? You know, I don't know if they played checkers in, in those days. Hey, uh, have you seen the latest uh, reality uh, TV show? What do you suppose the Apostle Paul talked about? Probably it started out with the soldiers saying, why are you here? And the Apostle Paul said, well, you got six hours, I can tell you this story. It started back here in Jerusalem. And he tells them the story. And then the shift's over, and another guy comes. And the guy says, why are you here? And he tells him his story. And uh, no doubt, these guys maybe were there multiple days, and and uh, eventually, the Apostle Paul shares the gospel, and some of them get saved. And, and, and they're rotating in and out. Maybe we would even think of them like the Secret Service because they're guarding Caesar's household. And so they're rotating in and out of caring for these special prisoners and caring for Caesar's household. And so some of them got saved, you know, and some of them, uh, no doubt, affected other people. But here's the thing for you to think about. Look at verse 13. How many prisoners do you suppose those soldiers guarded who said they were innocent? (laughs) And yet these soldiers came to understand this guy is in chains because of his service to Christ. What does that tell you about the life of Paul, the attitude of Paul, the words of Paul? Paul could receive company. I mean, 
uh, was it Epaphroditus that brought this letter from Philippi and brings it in and hands it to him? And, and there were other people in and out, we know, because when he signs this letter, there's other people involved. And so people could come and go. They could bring him money. They could bring him food, whatever. There's interaction. You know, one of the ways you really see people's character is when you watch them interact with other people. Anybody can be on their best behavior for a little while, but you watch them. And he was in, in this house arrest for two years. You can fake it for a while, but you can't fake it that long. And these soldiers had to have come to realize this guy is the real deal. Uh, I've hung out with enough police officers to know how cynical they are about people who are under arrest. And if this, if the Apostle Paul was not genuine and sincere and, and really a, a godly man, they would have seen right through it. The impact of God on your life is the absolute key to your effectiveness in God's ministry. You can have all the right words you want, but if God is not evident in your life, if people can't see that there's a change in your life, the ministry is not going to be there. Why does the body of Christ grow in places of persecution? Places like China that that were so heavily persecuted back in the 60s and 70s. and, And why is it that the church grows? And the reason is this. When there is persecution, there is no explanation for faithfulness except the reality of Christ. In our society, it's not that expensive to be a Christian. Hey, you be a Christian, you be a this, you be a that, whatever. You know, it doesn't really cost a lot of times. In persecuted societies, it's very expensive. So people look at it and say, why don't you just give that up and they'll stop persecuting you? And the people say, I can't give it up. I'm sure some of these soldiers said to Paul, Paul, why don't you just renounce this whole thing? They'll let you go. The charges are all trumped up anyway. You don't need to talk to Caesar. Look, I, I, can, I can fix this for you. The Apostle Paul said no. And so they saw his genuineness and it caused them to believe the message There was also a ministry to the believers. Look what it says in verse 14. And most of the brethren, most of the brethren in the Lord, that's the Christians, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, humanly, that's kind of an odd reaction. Here's a guy in in jail for his faith. And the Christians looked at that and went, I'm going to go out and talk about Jesus. Really? You're not going to go and hide and try to try to fly under the radar so nobody will know? Uh Uh-uh. In my sanctified imagination, I can imagine what must have happened at the First Baptist Church of Rome The first time a Praetorian guard came to church. Can you imagine that? Uh, Setting your politics aside. Can you imagine what a high-ranking official of our U.S. government, what would happen if one of them walked into church? You'd go, what? 
You're a Christian? Well, you know, I've been guarding this guy. And I've been sitting there six hours a day, and he told me, nah, 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 and, and I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. Really? Can you imagine them going back to their prayer meeting or their Bible study or whatever it was, going, wow, the Apostle Paul is in chains, and he witnesses to one of those guys, and they got saved. Wow, I guess anybody could get saved. Yeah. I mean, somehow the word was out. The people in Caesar's household were getting saved. And so they said, you know what? I'm going to take this more seriously. They were emboldened. Now, not everyone was emboldened. In fact, some of the Christians, this is some of the real Christians, created difficulty for Paul or tried to create difficulty. Look at verse 15. Verse 14, he says, Most of the brethren, key word there is most, they're much more bold to speak the word without fear, but some... Verse 15, are preaching Christ out of envy and strife. Verse 16, they preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Envy and rivalry. They preach Christ from envy and strife. The word envy seems to mean the desire to take something from someone more than just getting it for yourself. In other words, a, a person who is jealous wants something, but a person that is envious just wants you to not have it. Well, what were these people envious of? Why would a person preach Christ out of a selfish ambition? And then, of course, uh, the word selfish ambition there actually means to cause division for the purpose of gathering a following. To gather a following. The Apostle Paul was trying to get people to follow Christ. These other teachers were trying to get people to follow them. And then it's, uh, the Apostle Paul said, they suppose that they are adding affliction to me. Well, what's he talking about? I think what he's talking about is this. The Apostle Paul was the Apostle Paul. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the big guy. And these guys were envious. And so when he got in jail, they thought, here's our chance. We are going to really build up our congregation, and then we're going to look at Paul and go, nah, 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 how big are you now, buddy? You're in jail. We're out here. Take that. It's that kind of mentality. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, and they wanted to add affliction to him. Why would they think that their success at reaching people for Christ would make him unhappy? Are you ready to write it down? Because they thought, he thought, like they thought. They thought, he thought, like they thought. They looked at him and said, man, if I was in jail, I would be unhappy. 
And if some guy out here was building up a bigger congregation than I had, I would be unhappy. So I'm going to do it and he's going to be unhappy. See that? I'm finally more important than you are. How wicked. These were not false teachers. He never condemns their doctrine. These were brothers working out of envy and rivalry. They were self-promoters trying to make themselves into something important. But why did they fail to put Paul into a tailspin? It's because of what he delighted in. (laughs) Look at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice and I will rejoice. And he had said, we didn't look at those specifically, but he had also said, now there are some people preaching Christ because they love the Lord and love people and want them to come to faith. And But he said, there's, there's these people with a sincere heart and there's these people with an envious heart. And, and, he, and he looked at it and he said, you know what matters? What matters is that Christ is being preached. Now, Paul didn't say, he didn't approve of their wrong motives. He didn't say, well, that doesn't matter. No, what he said was, for him, what mattered was the preaching of Christ. Those envious people have to answer to God for their envy and for their rivalry. But what mattered to him was the preaching of Christ. And because he cared about that, he didn't care about all this human drama, whatever. He lived in peace knowing Christ is being preached. And that's what lit him up. What is it that lights you up? What drives your life? Because if it's anything other than the ministry of Christ, that thing can be taken away. That thing can be outdone. But if what drives your life is the ministry of Christ, then when it's happening, you're going, yeah. And, and, and though your life is in hardship and difficulty, you're going, yeah, it doesn't matter because Christ is being preached. The only thing that will not fail, the only thing that will not fail is the ministry of Christ. If your life is centered around anything else, you're going to have an up and down existence at best and potentially become so discouraged that you despair of life. But not Paul. Paul was optimistic. He was optimistic about his future because he believed God would take care of him. Look at verse 19. I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now, I I do believe the Apostle Paul had a very close relationship with the Lord. He may have had some prophetic knowledge. This time, he he is saying, I believe God is going to deliver me. In 2 Timothy, he is saying, the time of my departure is at hand. Was he pessimistic then? Oh, no. He was optimistic then as well. And this is what he says. When he, when, he, when he believed he was going to lose his head for the Christian faith, literally, he said, and the Lord will deliver me. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And so even when he knew the time of his death was at hand, he was still optimistic because he said, 
He said essentially this, I'm in God's hands. And what happens to me is going to happen because God determines it. The word deliver here uh, means to be saved. It doesn't mean to be freed or to be loosed. Verse 19, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. He doesn't say it will turn out for my freedom or for me losing my chain, but he did expect God to take care of him. And he expected God to take care of him through the prayers of the saints and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that's a little bit hard for us to grasp sometimes is the fact that God intends for us and him to work together. He has ordained the plans and he has ordained the means to get to that plan. And the Apostle Paul said, your prayer is going to work together with the Holy Spirit and result in my deliverance. God has determined to work through our prayers. Paul was delivered from prison by the prayers of God's people. I want to ask you, are you taking seriously your responsibility to pray for your brothers and sisters? Last week we talked about that. We talked about investing in people through prayer. Are you taking seriously your responsibility to pray for Helen Steele? She does, things, she does different things almost every day. And, uh, you know, one day she's talking to the people at City Hall, trying to get a little bit of, a, of a relaxation on the law. And the next day she's talking to the neighbors, saying, will you move your truck so we can have a graduation ceremony? And the next day she's doing the books, and the next day she's working in the library, and the next day she's translating and helping Phoebus with his Greek. And the next day she's downtown, she's here, she's there. She's all over Athens, basically. That's not an exaggeration, is it, Phoebus? <laughs> Are you... Are you taking seriously your responsibility to pray for her? Greece is in tremendous economic turmoil. I mean, it could go bankrupt. So could Italy. Okay? How's our missionaries going to fare? There's other missionaries besides Helen. Are, are you praying seriously for those people out there doing God's work as well as praying for one another? The Apostle Paul was optimistic about his future because the Holy Spirit was at work and God's people were praying. And he said, God's going to take care of me. <clears throat> and that's why ultimately the Apostle Paul's joy was wrapped up in, in this one thing, which is his was his mission. Look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation, my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always so now, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. The Apostle Paul wasn't pinning all of his hopes on getting out of jail, but he just said, I, I'm confident God's going to deliver me. But he said, you know what? It doesn't matter because as long as Christ is magnified in my body. The word magnified means to make something appear bigger. Stars, in reality, the stars in the sky are huge. But when we see them, they look like a little pinpoint out there. But if you take a telescope and look, they get bigger. They, the telescope magnifies the star. The Apostle Paul said, I want my life 
to make God appear bigger. He is big, but he's not always seen as big. And he says, I want that to happen. I believe it's going to happen in my body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, make God look good in your body. When Ben Sutton went to Africa, you remember the leader of the mission, the missionary leader of that project sat him down and he said, now here's what we're going to do today. And the very first thing he said was, we're going to make God look good today. Is that more important than putting wire in the walls for a hospital? Yes, it is. Is it more important for the Apostle Paul to show the impact of Christ in his life while he's chained or to be freed from the chain so he can preach the gospel. No, it's more important for him to magnify Christ right here, right now, so that that soldier looks at him and goes, Wow, buddy, you are not like most of the prisoners I've guarded. What is going on with you? And the Apostle Paul says, Well, We've got six hours. I'd like to tell you about somebody. But it only happens if you are living in such a way that Christ is magnified. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus may be manifest or, or made to be seen in our body. It's so easy to get all wound up about the circumstances of life, whether it's six screaming preschoolers, or a bad doctor's report, or a downturn at work, or, 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 or. It's really easy. To get wound up about that and think, oh, I've got to get rid of this chain. I've got to get rid of it. I've got to be free of it. This is ruining my life. Ah! And God says, am I not big enough? The Apostle Paul had matured. I'm sure the Apostle Paul had to struggle with this throughout his life as well. But by this point in his life, he's going, this is okay. This is okay because, number one, the gospel is being preached. And number two, my life is like a magnifying glass. And these guys are getting to see God. This is not about what we do for the Lord, but about who we are for the Lord. Paul succeeded in establishing the gospel beachhead in Rome, so much so that about five years after this was written, when Nero turned on the Christian community in A.D. 64, that a Roman historian could bear witness to the fact that there were a vast multitude of Christians in Rome. Just five years later. Now we look at that and say, Take that, Nero! Neither you nor the gates of hell can stop the work of Christ. Yeah. And we go, yeah, Christ, yeah. 
We take great joy in the triumph of Christianity in places like ancient Rome or modern China or Muslim-dominated countries. But what about in your life? What about in my life? Are we going to magnify Christ no matter what comes our way? The benefit, you know, when we magnify Christ, His ministry goes forward. The peace that we gain is not the goal. It's actually the the byproduct of walking with Christ. This is a great book if you've never read it. I think we have one in our library. It's called The God I Love by Johnny Erickson Tata. She's the uh, the woman, she's about my age, but when she was 19, she was paralyzed from the neck down, diving into a, a lake or something like that, and never regained any of her ability to, uh, to, uh, to take care of herself. She was in a wheelchair. She's been in a wheelchair, you know, for 30-plus years now. And this is, this is a, a retrospective just written a few years ago as she looked back in her life. And here is an episode in her life when she got to the land of Israel, and she got to the Pool of Bethesda. Remember what the Pool of Bethesda was about? Place of healing. The angel's going to stir the water, and the first one in is going to get healed. And, and, uh, and there was a fellow there, and Jesus came along and said, What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for somebody to put me in. And Jesus said, No, you don't need that. Get up and walk. And healed the man. Another dry breeze touched my wet face. Oh, Lord, you waited more than 30 years, almost as many years as the paralyzed man you healed that day to bring me to this place. I gulped hard, remembering the times I'd lain numb and depressed in my hospital bed, hoping and praying that Jesus would heal me, that he would come to my bedside as he did with the man on that straw mat, that he would see me and not pass me by. I remembered the times Diana would read to me about this place. I thought of the marble statue at John Hopkins and Jacques lying next to me in the dark singing Man of Sorrows. Ken, her husband, waved at her from way down in the ruins. You won't believe how many times I used to picture myself here, I called, my voice echoing across the crumpled stones and columns. Ken nodded. He continued to explore below, and I leaned on my arm against the guardrail. I whispered, and now, after 30 years, I'm here. I made it. Jesus didn't pass me by. He didn't overlook me. He came my way and answered my prayer. He said, no. I turned my thoughts, my words, heavenward. Lord, your no answer to physical healing meant yes to a deeper healing, a better one. Your answer has bound me to other believers and taught me so much about myself. It's purged sin from my life. It's strengthened my commitment to to you. It's forced me to depend on your grace. Your wiser, deeper answer has stretched my hope, refined my faith, and helped me to know you better. And you are good. You are so good. I let the tears fall. I know I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't love and trust you were it not for... And I looked down at my paralyzed legs for this wheelchair. Ken returned to my side, his chest heaving, his hands cupped. Look, I have something for you, he said excitedly, extending his hands. Water from the pool of Bethesda. 
I found it way down on the bottom of some steps. It was pitch black and scary, but I got some for you. A brisk wind rumpled our shirts as Ken placed his wet hands on my forehead. Lord, I thank you for my wife. I cried and laughed at the same time. Ken's prayer was like a capstone, a seal on a most remarkable day. We said goodbye to the pool of Bethesda and we walked back up the path toward the lion's gate. Don't you love that? We walked back up the path toward the lion's gate. I glanced back and I shook my head in amazement. It wasn't often I could presuppose God's motives, but I could with this one. He had brought me to the pool of Bethesda that I might make an altar of remembrance out of the ruins that I might see and thank him for the wiser choice, the better answer, the harder yet richer path. Ah, this is the God I love. The center, the peacemaker, the passport to adventure, the joyride, and the answer to all our deepest longings, the answer to all our fears, man of sorrows and Lord of joy, always permitting what he hates to accomplish something he loves. And he had brought me here all the way from home, halfway around the earth, so I could declare to anyone within earshot of the whole universe, to anyone who might care, that yes, there are more important things in life than walking. That's what it means to magnify God in your body, no matter what comes. Most of us don't have any difficulties at all like hers. What are you going to do today with the chain that God has placed on your life or will place on your life? Will you live in the same peace that Paul did by saying, all I care about is the proclamation of the gospel and the magnification of Christ. Heavenly Father, make it so in my life. Make it so in our church. Father, we've had some great examples of this over the years. May there be a string of examples from one to the other. So that those of us who are still reaching up can see how to live for you and to know your peace. May we care about what you care about and let you take care of the circumstances of our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.